0: All right. Good job. Good job. All right. Good morning, guys. There we go. There's a couple good mornings. I know we have a smaller group here, and that's okay. Uh, there's, there's no issues with that. Um, Merry Christmas, if I didn't see y'all before uh, today, of course. But my name is Joey Sedlock. I'm a member here of Sulphur Community Church. And uh, as David said, we are gonna be going to uh, be going—we are going to be jumping back into our study of 1 Corinthians, which we left off for four weeks to study uh, Advent, as we do every year, the, the coming, the arrival of Jesus from heaven uh, uh, to earth, and in that series, we, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a blessing this year that was different than most years. We got to, to think about uh, Jesus differently, think about what his coming meant, which uh, hopefully garnered more appreciation for what he accomplished, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to come back and get right back into 1 uh, Corinthians here, and so we are going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 1, but first let us, uh, let us pray and see what the Lord has for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and Lord, we are thankful. Lord, we are humbled. And Lord, the posture of our heart is, contri- is as contrite as as, as, as we can have it be. Lord, we pray, Lord, powerfully that you would speak regardless of obstacle that your word will go forth. Regardless of, of human imperfection, Lord, your perfect teaching will have its perfect intention and fulfillment in people's hearts. Lord, that you give us ears to hear, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, and Lord, that you accomplish what only you can, the revival of broken hearts. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so I am going to ask for a little bit of grace from you guys this morning. Uh, We're going to hear about how the Lord uh, visited a plague among Israel. Uh, and part of our text today, well, he also visited a plague among the Sedlock household. So uh, 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 we are all kind of recovering. I may not be as dynamic or uh, <laughs> maybe a little flat today. Just give you boys some grace, okay? Uh, but if you remember, we started Corinthians uh, a, a while back now. And Paul starts off this letter, to do a little bit of recap after taking a month off, right? uh, Paul starts off this letter, and he's just overwhelmed with thankfulness for the Corinthians, for the Lord's work, for for the confirmation of God's grace among this group of people. And sometimes, as we read through the Corinthian problems, it may be difficult to remember how optimistic Paul was in the beginning that they are saved, that they are loved, that God's grace is among them, and that God loves them and God is faithful to them. And then Paul goes into divisions that they had in their church, divisions that were wrought by, by pride, divisions that were, that were wrought by a, a, uh, a, a, a looking down, right, a, a focus on themselves instead of a focus on Jesus. And that's where, that's where Paul really gets into what he has for the Corinthians, which at every given turn is Jesus and Jesus, and Jesus, and more Jesus. That's all Paul has for them. Spoiler alert, right, for the rest of the book. And what Paul begins to do is Paul begins to confront these areas where they have taken their focus off Jesus and placed it on these other things, and he begins to address these other things as mere symptoms of the real problem, and that is a, a faithlessness, right? A a, a failure to believe every aspect of the gospel. Then Paul goes into, into the wisdom of God, starting around verse 4 or so, i in chapter 4. Paul goes into the, the wisdom of God, and, and it's versus the wisdom of man. Remember, the, 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 Christ, uh, the cross-shaped wisdom versus wisdom that the, that the world gives value to where he says that the cross is foolishness to the world. And he he, he urges us to become fools. And then he goes into purity. Remember those chapters? Purity in the marriage. Purity outside of marriage. Extramarital. Right? Purity when when you're by yourself acting appropriately. Purity, when you're surrounded by a culture that does not have the same uh, standards of purity as you do. And, and we learned that there was, there was in Corinth this, this spirit of, of, of uh, I say a spirit of freedom, I suppose. Paul, we know some things so we know how to navigate some things and we have freedoms and we have rights. And Paul confirmed all that. You do know some things, but your knowledge is misguided. It's better to be known than to know. Remember, to know God is to be known by God. And, and you do have rights, and you do have freedoms. And what Paul says is I mean, we should freely lay down those rights for the sake of the gospel. And right before we left off, Paul says, you know what's interesting when you think about a race? Everyone performs to run that race. Everyone trains to run the race, but only one guy gets to win. And what he urged us, and David, David's led us, David led us through this uh, right before we began our Advent season. David, uh, um, Paul urged us: Run like you want to win the race. Don't run aimlessly. Don't don't punch as though you're fighting air. In our verse today, it comes right after that. Remember, they didn't have a four-week gap to celebrate Advent. They didn't study this book. Well, I mean, I'm sure they did study the book, but they heard all this uh, in in, in one session. They read through this as a letter. In verse 1, here's what Paul says. So he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual fruit food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so, what we see here, and how closely you study this passage, and how closely you relate it back to what Paul just said, where he says, I want to run, I want to run to win, and I don't want to do anything that I would be disqualified. And he says, because I don't want you to be unaware. He's talking to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant. What he's going to do is he's going to give us examples of Israel, examples of a runner who did not run to win the fallout from not running to win. And then, of course, our bedrock promise that no matter how tired or distracted or how weak we may feel, God is faithful to sustain as, as we come against obstacles that hinder our running. And so he says, brothers, listen. Listen. He's, he's, he's emphasizing what's going to come next. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, that are fathers. And what there's, there's a lot of familial language that's right at the front of this text where Paul is putting himself in with, these, uh, with the Corinthians, right? He, says, he, say, he calls them brothers, and then he says, our fathers. And what he's already doing and what he's going to explicitly do in here in just a minute is he's building a bridge, he's building continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Paul was not a bad student of the Bible like I used to be, where I thought, well, the Old Testament is really cool, but it's also really long when you can just study the New Testament and be savvy with that, and you really don't need the Old Testament. I used to think that, okay? And then one of my professors said one time, I read the New Testament once. He was joking. He said, I read the New Testament once. It all sounded familiar. He was a professor of the Old Testament. And he said something that was was stunning. He said, you know, you can't possibly understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. Now, Paul, what he's doing here is he's building that continuity. He says, our fathers. Remember, he's not talking to Jewish believers. He's talking to Gentile believers, those who were not a part of the synagogues, those those who didn't have this scripture memorized and have scrolls of Isaiah in their houses and, and things like that. He says... Our fathers were all under the cloud. And he's referencing the wilderness journey that Israel had after their exodus from Egypt. Now Paul's also assuming that they're familiar with these stories, which he has the right to do because he's the one that taught them these things. And he says, if you remember, Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt, and they were in the wilderness where they had a lot of struggles, and we're going to read about those in a minute, where they had to rely on God. And he said, now, our fathers, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, and he says all five times in the next few verses. He says that they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual fruit, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, and what he is saying, he is saying, our fathers were provided for. Our fathers were blessed. Our fathers were in the wilderness, and all of them experienced the same thing. A miraculous provision, day in, day out. A Physical leading by Yahweh through a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. In this time, I'll just be honest, in this time in the wilderness, it would have been tough to be an atheist. Okay? They are being led by cloud in the day, by fire at night. It would have been tough to say, God doesn't exist. Show me proof that God exists. Like, well, food rains from the heaven every day because we're in the desert and there's not a lot of food here. Water comes from rocks. The fire, that's Yahweh himself leading his way, going before us, protecting us. And the cloud is the same thing. You would think this would be a story of just constant spiritual high. But what Paul wants to emphasize first is the blessing that they received how universal it was, and where it came from, or more distinctly, who it came from. So it says that they were all under the cloud. That's the leading, the physical leading of Yahweh by cloud, on, uh, by, cloud by day. He says they all passed through the sea. This is the Red Sea, right? Running from the Egyptians. They, they, were, they were pinned between the sea. The chariots were coming. And what happens was, the cloud uh, the pillar of fire it actually moves from in front of them to behind them and it stands in between egypt and it stands in between israel as they were as moses parts the red sea and they cross it on dry land yahweh physically puts a barrier between his people and their enemy again emphasizing yahweh's faithfulness to provide for all of israel during this time and it says that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This one's a little tougher. This is this is this is what uh, those who 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 see this type of thing in Scripture call it a, a typology. It's a it's a shadow of what would be fully realized at a later date, where where Paul is drawing a parallel between Israel's uh, literal and physical. Uh, salvation from Egypt to a believer's spiritual salvation from the bondage of sin. Right, so we use the word baptism, uh, but the way that this baptism is being, the way that this word is being used here, is this baptism into Moses was was a shadow of, of what a full baptism would be that we experience as a baptism into into Christ. And so what what he is saying here is, as they pass through the sea, their identity became wrapped up in the deliverer that God had provided, which was Moses. They were, they, they were the people of God. Yes, but they were the people that followed Moses, and they identified with their leader. They identified with Moses, just like as we are baptized now, we are, we are uh, pushed down into the water, and when we rise up, we are now identifying openly, publicly. Uh, we are identifying with Christ, and what he is saying is that they, they all went through this baptism. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. And, and Paul is adding this qualifier here, spiritual, to this food and this drink. And what he is saying is, yes, it was, it was literal food, right? It's, it's not like they went to sleep and had a dream that they were full and woke up full. No, they had literal food. They had literal drink, but the origins of this food and this drink were supernatural. The provider of this food and in this drink was with them providing for them but the provider was also supernatural for what we see is they drank from the spiritual capital rock they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and Paul says something here he says and the rock was Christ Now, the word drank here, it's in the perfect tense, which means it's an action that started in the past and continues into the future. And it's, it, could be, uh, it could also be translated "were drinking for the, for, for the water that they were drinking. It came from this spiritual rock. And so what we see... What we see is that Christ was with his people in the wilderness. That Christ was with Israel in the wilderness thousands and thousands of years before he would come take on human flesh and die on the cross for his people. Now, some people call this a theophany or or a Christophany, a physical uh, manifestation of God, a physical manifestation of Christ before his actual uh, indwelling of, of human skin. But to get into that debate starts to risk missing the point that Paul is making here. Paul is continuing to draw parallels, continuing to, to have continuity between uh, Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, specifically the church here in Corinth, but of course the New Testament Big Sea church, which extends to us today, and that is salvation has always come through Christ. Deliverance has always come through Jesus. Jesus has always been the one who who provides for his people and is the provision for his people. For he says, Jesus was actually the one providing provision for uh, ancient Israel in the wilderness. And Paul says, for he was the rock. And if you go through and you read... um, and you read these accounts, there's, there was a rock that said, it said that this rock followed them. It doesn't mean the rock had legs, and like every time they turned around, it would sit still or anything like that. But he's saying that, that this, this rock followed them. And from this rock came water. Now, you know, water doesn't naturally come from a rock. So this is a supernatural event that's going on here. And until Paul says this, right here, an intense student of the Old Testament Paul was... Paul is saying, listen, here's the continuity between you. Don't think, oh, Israel is ancient Israel. What happened to them doesn't matter to us. The decisions they made don't matter to us. We're completely different. We have either replaced them or they don't matter anymore. What Paul is saying is, actually, the rock that provided water in the wilderness, that was Jesus. And New Testament readers My ears kind of perk up. Okay, you said a a word that I know. You, You said baptism, and I'm familiar with that. And you said Jesus, and I'm familiar with that. And Paul says, the same one who provided for all of Israel in the wilderness provides for you. Here's what that also means. The same one that laid out the punishments for their disobedience and their sin it's the same head of the church that we have today you see what happens is people think or people begin to think and I'm not, I'm not criticizing anyone for this it's, it's very easy to do especially with um, teaching that doesn't take uh, the Old Testament very seriously we begin to think that in the Old Testament God was just this really young angry prophet who if you didn't do what he said he destroyed you but then like he kind of got like old grandpa status and he chilled out a bit and so now we're in this grace where like he understands your sin and he's with you and, and he empathizes for you and I'm not saying that some of those things aren't true what I'm saying is God is the same both Old Testament and New Testament Christ is the same both Old Testament and New Testament his holiness is the same and the absolute destruction that your sin brings is the same most, most scholars would agree that, yes, we are in what they call a window of grace, but this is not a window of God not taking His holiness seriously. And what, what Paul is about to point out is, is the same dude that took on human flesh and climbed on a cross and died for your sin, he is the one who best understands your sin and its gravity and its graveness and its, uh, and, and, and its penalty, and what he is saying is... continue to do the same things that we have seen repeatedly punished in the past is to reap spiritual disaster and death among you even today and that's true in 2021 as well that didn't stop in corinth verse 5 says nevertheless right all of Israel identified with Moses right they identified with God all of Israel walked out of the gates of Egypt. All of Israel saw uh, food raining from the sky. They saw the, the, the fire. They saw the cloud. They experienced these intense spiritual uh, uh, experiences where, where they saw miraculous things happen. And Paul says, nonetheless, nevertheless, despite these things, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness now exactly how many people were delivered from Egypt there's a debate there I've never shielded y'all from debate some people think it's like mm, 5,000 people some people think it's like mm, 2.5 million right there's, there's debate about what those Hebrew words mean and, and, and how many people it actually was to get into that debate again this is the point that Paul's trying to make what Paul's trying to say is hey listen out of everyone that God provided for, that saw the works of God, two saw the promised land. Even if God only delivered 25,000 people from Egypt, two saw the promised land. If God delivered 2.5 million from the lands of Egypt, which he is fully capable, neither one of those things are easier or harder for him. Two, Joshua and Caleb saw the promised land what happened to the rest they were killed by who God I don't want to take that weight off of you I'm not saying hey, if you go home and you grumble against the Lord today he's going to kill you I'm just saying this is what historically happened He says that they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's a nice way to put it. More accurately, it is that they were cut down in the wilderness. That they were scattered, meaning that as they traveled, as they sinned, as they rebelled, as the Lord killed them, their bodies were scattered throughout the desert. Paul is saying this, brothers, sisters, those who I love, I don't want you to be misinformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. God's judgment is serious. Sin is serious. His holiness is serious. But there's a confusion here that may begin to take hold that I don't want us to have. God's judgment and God's and and, and our sinful disobedience uh, causing a a loss of blessing let's put it that way is not a loss of salvation David had to deal with this a little bit because Paul said I want to run the race like I'm going to win and I want to prepare myself to give me the best opportunity to win to win a crown that won't fade and Paul said I don't want to do anything that would disqualify myself and we had to stop we had to say listen this is not a, if you're not perfect, God's going to take away your salvation, right? There's, now, now that's, 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 the, uh, that's one ditch on one side of the road, right? Like i got to do everything perfect, because if not, God's going to take away my salvation. And then we have another ditch on the other side of the road, that is, I have my fire insurance, therefore I can do whatever I want, and God doesn't care anymore. The best place to be where the Bible is is in the middle of those two ditches. But I understand to get off on either one is difficult to get back out of. And I don't want us to get off in this one over here where I say, I say either either you're obedient or God's judgment is going to come upon you and He's going to kill you. And He's like going to kill uh, everyone that you know and He's going to take away salvation. It's just like, no, 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 no. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul wants us to do is Paul wants us to, wants us to have a very clear understanding that that there is a warning here both to the genuine Christian and to the lukewarm uh, Christian. God's judgment is severe and God is not mocked. God is not fooled. And in in Galatians 6-7, he would tell the Galatians, you reap exactly what you sow, Christian or not. What Paul wants to say is one's identification with the people of God even when that's coupled with extraordinary spiritual experiences does not exclude the possibility of spiritual disaster in your life. In spite of God's perpetual uh, perpetual, uh, provision for, for Israel, Israel committed serious sins and they died in the wilderness. Paul is saying God's blessings flow. To the obedient, not merely to people who call themselves Christians. We gotta understand that. We we gotta get that before we can move through the examples that Paul's gonna give us and, 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 and the application and the teaching that Paul's gonna give us, the encouragement that Paul's gonna give us to get through uh, these times in lives. God's blessings flow to the obedient, not merely to those who identify themselves with Jesus. Verses 6 through 11, Paul's going to give us the facts. He's he's, he's, he's rehearsing history to us. He's going to say, now these things are examples for us. And I'm actually going to stop there and and confuse uh, the people putting the words on the screen. I'm sorry about that. he said, now, because this is important. Paul is saying, everything that I'm I'm about to say, it's an example for us. It's an example for us to learn from. And I'll continue now, for these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer now these things happened uh, to them as an example but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come so paul says listen he begins this section and ends it with the with the teaching that this is an example this is a warning. And he says, for us. Now, we can identify in there. He's talking to the Corinthians, so he's putting himself in there. But Sulphur Community Church is, in, is included here. They are also examples for you and I. This is an example. This is a warning for those who desire evil, for those who crave evil. And he says, he says listen. This is a negative Example: These are negative examples that need to be avoided at all costs. The behaviors that, that, that settled down into Israel that caused so much destruction and rebellion, these should be shunned. These behaviors, they are unacceptable and they are intolerable among the people of God. And these behaviors are not things that the Lord is going to continue to allow to be among his people. Heed the warning. Look to Israel as an example. Repent, confess, look to Christ. That's what Paul has for them over and over again. And in verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters. That's where he starts. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to drink and rose up to play. And what he's doing he's referring to Exodus 32. and, and, and if you're familiar with that, uh, or even if you're not, that is the golden calf incident, right? Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's like face to face with God. He's talking to God. God's given them the Ten Commandments. And Aaron, who's the high priest, he's down there with the people. They're grumbling. they're upset. They don't know what Moses is doing. And so what they do is they fashion a calf out of gold and they start worshiping the calf as though it were Yahweh, as though it were the one true God. Moses comes down and he's like, what in the world are you doing? Aaron takes no responsibility. He basically says, hey, man, they got together and they threw all their jewelry in the fire and like out popped a calf. I don't know what you want me to do. And it says that they, that they sat down to drink and they rose up to play. And what this is, is this is a frivolousness. This is a dire sin that has taken place, this, this, this idol worship of a golden calf. And what they're doing, they're partying. They're having a good time. This is, this is what took place in ancient Israel. And though uh, Paul does not specifically bring out the, uh, the consequence that was laid out in there, if you go back and read Exodus 32, it says that 3,000 people were, were, uh, were killed and a plague was sent among Israel idolatrous worship will not be tolerated among the people of God. And what Paul is saying is, heed this warning. Now, where Paul goes next is closely tied to the worship of idols, which is sexual immorality. And he says, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 people fell that day. This is referring to uh, an event out of Numbers 25 where what happened was uh, the people of Israel, they started to marry Moabite women. As they were marrying Moabite women, they started w- worshiping Moabite, Moabite gods, which were uh, namely, uh, were, uh, were Baal. And, and, and what we see here is, again, Israel's stubbornness and Israel's rebellion against God and Israel's uh, rebellion against the things of God in and, and, and idol worship. Uh, specifically linked to uh, sexual immorality. Because part of the worship of Baal included things uh, that, were, that were off limits to, to the Israelites, namely uh, things like temple prostitution and, uh, and well, I'm going to continue to go deep into there. Um, and, and the result of that, the result of that rebellion 23,000 people were killed in one day. It says that they, they were all consumed by a plague and died. So Paul's saying, hey listen, sexual immorality is not tolerated among God's people. Heed the warning. Look at Israel. Look at what happened. verse 9, it says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. This is, this is probably coming, no, 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 this one is, this one is coming out of Numbers 21, um, as well, Israel, where it says that Israel grew patient, grew impatient, they never grew patient, Israel grew impatient in the wilderness, and they started speaking against God, and speaking against Moses. This is one of the uh, this is one of the ep- um, instances where where they started where they said hey, oh, we don't really think Moses knows what he's talking about we think that he led us out here to die and and this is one of the instances where uh, they they said well you know uh, in Egypt we were slaves but we did know where food was coming from we did know where where, where drink was coming from and we knew what the next day was kind of going to have maybe it wouldn't have been so bad if we'd have just stayed slaves in Egypt. And what happened was, this specifically kind of caught me off guard. This is quoted uh, in in Numbers 21. It says, we loathe this worthless food. That was their complaint. We loathe this worthless food set the stage for that just a little bit remember it was Christ Christ was providing food Christ was providing water this provision was supernatural, it was miraculous and they looked at this provision and they said this is worthless, you've done nothing for us now we're all familiar with being like upset with our parents right like as a kid remember maybe it was just me, I don't know. got a lot of silence here. And I remember I was upset with my dad one time because he said he was going to cut my cell phone off. Now I paid for my cell phone, okay? I got a job and I paid for it, and that's what I stood on. You can't cut it off. I paid for it. I was on his plan, so he definitely could. And he said, "Well, good luck charging it with my electricity." Well. He had me there, but my response was, you don't do anything for me. You don't do nothing for me. That's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous, but that's, that's the same thing. This is, this is a human thing to do, and this is what they were doing in here, and that, that idea, it grew among the Israel people, and, and, and what, uh, what Paul calls it here is Paul calls it putting Christ to the test, because Christ was, remember, he was the rock. He was the one providing this provision. And what they did was they looked back at them and, he, and they, said, they, they, they said, God, you don't do anything for us. And what you do for us it's worthless. It says that God sent fiery serpents among them. And it says that they were destroyed by these serpents. Thousands Verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, unfortunately, grumbling was so common among ancient Israel, it's hard to know which instance Paul was talking about here. But after reading several instances, it seems like he was talking about an instance out of uh, Numbers 14. Where it says that the people grumbled against Moses, grumbled against Aaron, and and they and this is one of the instances where they said, Let us just go back to Egypt. And it says that they were destroyed by the definite article, capital D, destroyer. There's a lot of things that get meted out in Scripture. This is by far one of the most terrifying. Being destroyed by the capital D destroyer, which means there is something in existence called the destroyer. It destroys things. That's what its job is. Now what this most likely is, is the angel of death that actually passed over them in Egypt, covered by the blood of the lamb on their doorstep, this is probably that same um, angel of destruction here. But the consequence here is that an entire generation is destroyed. Paul says, everybody 24 and up, you're dead. For 40 years, they wandered in circles in the wilderness until that entire generation died. He spared two people, Joshua, Joshua, in Caleb. Verse eleven, Paul says, and and I picture—I don't really picture Paul having a real stern, like I'm yelling at you, kind of kind of uh, uh, demeanor here. But I do picture eleven being a, a little bit lax, a little bit more reassuring, a little bit like um, you know, this this isn't everything that the Bible says. Now he says, now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the, in, in, uh, the end of the ages has come. And so he repeats almost an entire verse, and, and we remember that when, uh, when something is repeated, we take, uh, we take notice of that. And verse 11 is almost a verbatim rep, uh, repetition of verse 6 with a little bit added on here. And what is saying, he said, now listen... All these things that are written down, they are written down as examples for us. Scripture is not merely historical record. It is, it is more than that. Israel's actions and Israel's suffering, they were not in vain. They were not pointless. They were not meaningless. They served many purposes, but one of the purposes that they served is they are a warning for us, which means they are grace for us. And if you go back and read the Old Tes- Testament, God showed them a whole lot more grace than I would have showed them if I were God. So, so it's not that, that God is this, is this bipolar person who a long time ago used to get real angry, then he got on the right medications, and now he's chill. It's, it's saying, listen, these were written down. Scripture serves a purpose, and this purpose is to serve as an example for us. He says, on whom the end of the ages has come. There's a lot of debate on what in the world that means, but what I, what we, what I believe that means is, is this is a lesser to greater kind of argument, meaning since we have their example, because there was no example before them, right, that they should have followed. Since we have their example, this is an especially strong warning for us and how much more grave would our punishment be if all we did was repeat their behavior when we have a clear example of where that leads? And this is where Paul's going to come in and he's going be, to begin to reassure, to encourage, and to more plead with, with the Corinthians. He says, therefore, which is where he begins his conclusions, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so he says, listen. This is, this is, this is some of everything that he's been saying. This is some of, of, of warning here. This, this anyone who thinks that he stands, this reaches all the way back to chapter 8 for anyone who thinks that they have knowledge, right? Knowledge that puffs up. Knowledge that doesn't love. Knowledge that doesn't sacrifice for others. Knowledge that prioritizes itself over being known by God and knowing God, right? He is, saying, he is saying this type of demeanor, this type of posture that thinks that they stand when they should be humble and sit, he says, take heed for they will fall. This is as opposed to the person who knows God, who is known by God, and who, and who flees from their sin and lives a life pleasing to God, lives a life fleeing from idolatry, which is exactly where Paul is fixing to go. And Paul says, listen, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is refreshing. I'll say this, one of the biggest lies that the adversary will ever try to push you into is you are the only one that struggles like this. You should be ashamed of yourself. I can't believe that you struggle with this. No one else does this. Everyone else has this figured out but you. What's wrong with you? And Paul is saying, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. That every man, that every woman, that every believer has not struggled with. In contrast to these strong warnings, Paul offers this encouragement to those who seek refuge in the faithfulness of God. This temptation, this craving as listening above, this craving of this evil, it's not stronger than God. The allure of idolatry. The attractiveness of sexual immorality. The, the allure of grumbling or of... Or of, of, uh, of, of, of gossip. Uh, the, the, these other acts of, of faithlessness that, that Israel experienced, that we have for example, and that we experience there. these. These are not extraordinary temptations from which there is no escape. They are common to all believers. Other people suffer as you do. That's refreshing. He gives us a reminder, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your your ability, right? Right? So here's the reminder. God is faithful. Here's the promise. You will not be tempted beyond your ability. Here's the caveat. This verse, and I always have, to, always have to help you navigate these verses that are taken out of context very easily. This verse often gets misconstrued, I think, by well-meaning people trying to help those that are suffering to say, God will never give you more than you can bear. That's in the the context of suffering, which is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is is talking about being tempted. Paul is talking about sin setting a snare from you that you can't possibly escape from. What, What Paul is saying here is that there is no sin so devious, there is no snare so clever that once caught in it, God can't get you out of it, or that you can't get out of it. And what that does is that keeps our focus where it needs to be. When someone is, when someone is suffering, maybe they've lost someone or maybe uh, they've incurred uh, just some kind of loss that causes suffering, and you come alongside of them and you tell them, hey, listen, you can get through this because God will never give you more suffering than you can handle. What you actually do is turn them inward. You can get through this, and you know how you can because God's not going to give you more than you can handle. So they, they think that they need to toughen up and get through it because, if, 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 because they're experiencing it, they can get through it, so they just need to fight harder. And it also says, and it also forces us to put God in a box outlined about what we find fair. It would be unfair for God to give you this if you couldn't endure it, and God's not unfair, therefore he wouldn't do that. And, and I don't mean to spend so much time on it, but it's such an easy step to move from what the Bible is saying here to what the Bible does not say in times of suffering. But what Paul is saying here is he's pointing us outwards. God will not tempt you beyond your ability and what he's saying is, there is no sin more powerful than God. Continue to cling to God. Paul keeps us focused on the only one that can provide escape, and he gives us the promise that as faithful as God has been in what we see and what we see in all of Scripture, He will also provide a way of escape. Sometimes that escape is tough. Okay? that escape from your sin, that escape from from temptation, that escape from, from the allure that these sins bring, it is tough. I used to be a very lucid dreamer, which means there was things in dreams that you would realize, realize that you were dreaming, stay in the dream and be able to control things about your dream sometimes you see it referenced in movies like a red ball rolling across the floor, and you're like, oh, snap, I'm dreaming. So you start changing things. The escape that we're talking about here is not like that. And what I mean by that is, it's not in the midst of of your uh, temptation. You look around and you find the easy button that says escape, and you press it, and all the temptation just goes away. That's not the escape that that we're talking about here. The escape here is usually believing a promise. And recognizing a lie. Temptations make promises to us that they cannot actually fulfill. And what we do in those times and how we actually escape those temptations is we hold fast to God's promises. Idolatry promises things to us. Sexual immorality promises things to us. Grumbling and not trusting Christ it promises things to us that they actually fulfill where God doesn't, where they are actually competent, where God is incompetent, where they actually see you, where God has forgotten you. And the way of escape from those things is not to take a look around and, 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 and hit a button and it all goes away or you wake up from a dream. The way to escape from those things is to speak truth to those lies. God is faithful. God will not tempt me beyond. God is more powerful than my sin. God is able to always provide me with a way out. You do not satisfy. You cannot satisfy. You will never satisfy. There is your escape from every single temptation. But you have to want to escape. You have to run the race. You have to run the race to win you have to be honest you don't always want to escape in that temptation sometimes we want our sin more than we want to escape from it God is still faithful God is still pursuing you God is still releasing you from that snare but to escape you have to want to escape Nothing about Christianity is you sitting on your couch, watching Netflix, becoming more like Jesus. It's not passive. It's active. You have to work. To earn your salvation? No. To become more like Christ? Yes. Reminder, God is faithful. Promise. He will not tempt you uh, beyond your... He will not uh, let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will always provide escape. That escape is believing... Those promises, the way of escape will always be there. It will not be easy. And even when you don't escape, right? Because we don't always. I don't always. Even when you don't escape, when you fail, when you fall, you are invited to the cross where your sin has been canceled by the one who canceled it. What Paul is saying, what he will explicitly say in the very next verse, flee from idolatry. What Paul is saying here is, flee from your evil cravings. Trust Jesus. They do not have power over you. They are not inescapable. Look to Jesus. He is empathetic, for he was also tempted in the same way that you were, yet without sin. He is persuasive. In providing a way of escape. He is persistent. He is more persistent than sin's pursuit of you. His pursuit of you is far more persistent. There is more power in Jesus than there is in the temptations. And there is there is more in Jesus is more satisfying than any temptation could ever promise to be. Paul says, flee your temptations. Hold fast to Christ. Follow uh, heed the examples of Israel for the wages of sin is death. The way of Christ is life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and though it was a stern warning, Lord, we thank you for your warning. Lord, your warnings are grace to us. Your word is grace to us. And Lord, I pray that you give us the wisdom and the boldness that it takes to, to see these negative examples. Lord, to believe in times where we feel where we feel faithless. Lord, to see you as as more satisfying and more desirable even in the depths of our sin. And Lord, we are thankful for that even when we don't. Our place is still at the table. There's still a room prepared for us. And Lord, that your grace is never exhausted. I pray that you give us a mindset that doesn't want to take advantage of that, but wants to to live a life pleasing to you. We love you. We praise you. Praise all these things in your name.